Global value investing through a different lens. Antipodes searches the world for great companies trading at attractive valuations. Welcome to Good Value by Antipodes, a global fund manager with offices in Sydney and London. On Good Value, hear discussions about Antipodes' best investment ideas and perspectives on industry and macroeconomic trends. Supply will be the first problem uh, and also uh, reluctance. But um, I think certainly somewhere in 2021, uh, anybody who will be willing to get a vaccine can have access to a vaccine. I'm Nick Cameron, Sector Head of Healthcare at Antipodes Partners. The voice you just heard was that of Dr. Michael Fasen. He's one of the world's leading experts when it comes to understanding COVID-19, particularly the virus that causes it, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Dr. Fasen discovered the mechanism by which the SARS-CoV-1 virus infected cells during the SARS outbreak of 2003, and is the foremost expert HIV virology and vaccine development. He is currently Professor and Chair of the Department of Immunology and Microbiology at the Scripps Research Institute in Florida. In the following conversation, we discuss COVID-19, why it is different, will we soon see a vaccine, and what are the risks and challenges facing successful vaccine development. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. The first question which I get quite frequently is just how, how different this SARS-CoV-2 virus is to, you know, the to what people believe causes the common cold. So-called uh, mild coronaviruses, the ones that do cause common cold, these are not the most prominent uh, causes of the common cold. We have rhinoviruses, we have adenoviruses, we have a variety of viruses, but there are indeed at least four coronaviruses uh, that cause very mild, mild cold-like symptoms. And in, in broad outline from the point of view of virologists, they're very similar uh, to SARS coronavirus 1 and SARS coronavirus 2, SARS coronavirus 2 being the COVID-19 virus. And uh, so they have very similar mechanisms of replication. They, uh, they often are, uh, they prefer to infect uh, cells that are in our lungs. Uh, they uh, do a very good job attacking our upper respiratory tract. Uh, and there, uh, then there are a number of major differences. So it's important to remember that there, uh, most of the world is focused on one of the proteins of this virus. But there are many proteins. This virus carries many proteins. It's got a very large genome. And those uh, proteins are very, very different between the common cold coronaviruses and SARS coronavirus 1 and 2. And those other um, proteins also modulate immune function and dictate the severity of these viruses. And then the most important distinction between SARS 1 and SARS 2 on one side and the common cold viruses on the other side. Um, is that the common cold viruses have been circulating in humans for decades or generations or even eons. Uh, whereas these new viruses are zoonotic transmissions and most very serious diseases come from recent uh, movement from one species to another. Using the SARS-CoV-1 back in 2003, that outbreak, 
from your learnings from that outbreak and that particular virus, what about it did you learn from there that makes you think this current SARS-CoV-2 virus is indeed targetable by vaccines? And were there efforts at the time to develop vaccines? Yes, there were, there were indeed efforts. And I think what we learned from SARS-1 is that uh, this class of viruses is very easy to vaccinate against. And we understood that from SARS-1. It's absolutely true for SARS-2 as well. And it's for two good reasons. One is because of the, the very large genome. The virus has to replicate with high fidelity, meaning it, it makes relatively few errors per protein. And as a consequence, it doesn't move very fast. So it doesn't have available to it the same strategy that flu does for example, which moves very flat, fast in response to an evolving immune system or a, a vaccine that's been administered to a population. Um, so that's one thing that makes it easy to vaccinate against. The other thing that makes this class of viruses easy to vaccine against in stark contrast to many other RNA viruses is its, its key uh, immune targets, its key antibody epitopes, the key things that the immune system needs to recognize these are very exposed on this virus. And as a consequence, uh, this virus is very susceptible to antibody-mediated neutralization. Um, and if a virus is susceptible to antibody-mediated neutralization, uh, that's the best way to stop it in its tracks. It's the least harmful way to stop a virus in its tracks. It's the easiest and the first, except for your initial so-called innate immune response, it's, it's sort of the first line of defense. And uh, so our vaccines are very good at raising antibodies and the virus is susceptible to antibodies. So that makes a very good combination. And in contrast, just to take the other extreme, the other pole of sensitivity, HIV is incredibly in, uh, uh, incapable unsusceptible to the standard immune responses that, you, that a vaccine would try to generate. Uh, it hides its key uh, regions. And uh, so it's, that's why we don't have an HIV vaccine at this moment. So it sounds like you're fairly confident. How would you frame that level of confidence on the current and future, I guess, vaccine approaches to the SARS-CoV-2 virus and um, maybe cover off on why there's not vaccines for the existing endemic coronaviruses that you mentioned before that can cause mild, mild cold? Maybe hit the second question first. The primary reason why uh, there's not a lot of vaccines is there. it's unclear whether that would make sense for the other coronaviruses. The problem is there's a number of them. We can't anticipate which one is circulating. They're, they don't cause most of the colds that we worry about. And so it would be a huge lift to try to vaccinate against these relatively uh, mild viruses and persuade people to get this vaccine, these vaccines. Uh, and in and, and, and point of fact, you would probably have to vaccinate against uh, 10 or 12 different viruses to, for that to make sense anyway. Uh, and then your first question was about uh, the, my confidence on the, the, the set of vaccines uh, for SARS-2. And uh, I would like to phrase it this way. My confidence, I'm so confident that we're going to be able to make a decent vaccine that even what I consider to be uh, suboptimally designed vaccines at this point, I expect to be to work 
effectively enough to make sense to distribute uh, to the population. Um, which uh, which is that's kind of two pieces of good news built in there. The first piece of good news is that um, the current vaccines are going to provide enough protection to keep most of us out of the hospital to prevent most of us from having uh, severe diseases and um, uh, but perhaps not preventing most of us from transmitting to one another. So that's a, a second issue. Uh, so that's one piece of confidence and, and one piece of good news. The second piece of the good news is even from that starting point, so from that reasonable starting point, we have a very large amount of running room to improve. The next generation of vaccines will be better than the first generation. And also, maybe as importantly, a boost, even with a not so good vaccine, can uh, overcome the limitations of a not very good vaccine. So your second, typically your second response to a vaccine is much stronger than your first response to a vaccine. And so that can compensate for an, uh, uh, an imperfect vaccine. Uh, so the, the the basic news is bright. We know, we we kind of have. I've just said this phrase before. We've kind of had this in hand. Once we overcome the manufacturing distribution issues, just on that, then will having let's call it the suboptimal vaccine preclude you from having a next generation better vaccine in the future? No. Uh, uh, with one caveat, there's one exception in there, but. Uh, in general, no. And in fact, your next vaccine, the response to your next vaccine will be stronger and better as a consequence of your having had this less good vaccine. Now, the one exception to this, or the partial exception to this, is the case of adenovirus-based vaccines. And the problem with adenovirus-based vaccines is you also make an antibody response to the capsid that delivers the vaccine. And as a consequence, your second uh, dose of an adenovirus vaccine typically is less potent than the first dose in contrast to almost every other vaccine. So you would, you could take, you could have an adenovirus vaccine and then boost with another class of vaccines. Uh, but you wouldn't want to generally make your second, um, your boost a second adenovirus vaccine. Uh, at least at the, and it gets in more details because you could, there's different capsids. So, for example, you could have the Oxford vaccine and then boost with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because there's different capsids, even that. Uh, but in general, um, uh, yeah, you, you probably want to boost with something else. And um, I'll, I'll sort of uh, state a, 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 an opinion, which is... Um, uh, if all things being equal, meaning you have access to all the different classes of vaccines, I think I would lean more toward those that are protein-based first with established adjuvants, and then second to perhaps the, uh, the mRNA class of vaccines, and then only third to um, the adenovirus class vaccine. Uh, for, for a variety of reasons in there, but the, the, the most reason is um, at this point, I would think that working with a tried and true technology would eliminate some of the unknown and un unknown as associated with the other technologies. And would that be, do you think, in your mind, you know, where the, like you said, the tried and true traditional protein subunits with an adjuvant 
approach where the importance of the adjuvant is to provide that, let's call it enhanced or boosted immune response and preferably in those tissues. Yeah, that's definitely one of the advantages of protein-based vaccines is you have a lot more choice of adjuvants. Mm. Uh, so with an mRNA vaccine, they do kind of adjuvant the lipid nanoparticle. With adenovirus, the adenovirus is the adjuvant. Mm. You have the most sort of room for improvement or room for, for tweaking and improvement with the protein-based vaccines. Um, that said, the adjuvants that people are working with, including uh, Novavax and uh, Sanofi, these are protein-based vaccine manufacturers. Um, the adjuvants that they're working with are quite good. Mm. Where they may be making some mistakes or where there's room for improvement in, in their cases is really with antigen design. Um, and so you know, they just basically did the first thing they could think of uh, and mixed it with an adjuvant and tried it. Uh, and that's fine. That was good. Uh, but there's definitely room for improvement there. So, so protein-based vaccines are good because they can use well, you know, uh, very, very strong adjuvants that have been developed over time and have been proven in humans, at least certainly the, the uh, Sanofi GSK uh, adjuvant. Mm. And, um, and to be clear, the uh, Novavax adjuvant is sort of a variant of that that's not too, um, uh, you know, distinct. Uh, and then, um, whereas the other vaccine delivery systems have fewer choices with adjuventine, um, and so less room for improvement, less less a bit able to take advantage of the progress that's been made in adjuvants. Maybe if you can opine on where you think the risk is of a mutation. The key worry is are mutations that start emerging in the receptor binding domain, because they are the most important targets for any vaccine, whether or not you're presenting the full S protein. Uh, and that risk uh, can be thought of in a couple of ways. The first thing to say is, yes, there's really been only one mutation fixed in the entire S protein over the eight months or whatever it is of the pandemic. So that's very good news. And even better, there are zero mutations fixed in the receptor binding domain. That doesn't mean a, a particular individual doesn't pop up one or another mutations, but they tend not to be fit, tend not to be selected for, or transmitted. So that's very, very good news on, on that front. And then the second thing is, uh, as we're worrying about mutations, uh, we can think about it from the point of view, if you're delivering an antibody-based therapy versus you're delivering a vaccine. Now, if you're delivering a, an antibody-based therapy, a single point mutation, say in the receptor binding domain, can uh, basically eliminate the usefulness of a particular antibody. This is why, for example, the Regeneron cocktail has two antibodies, by the way, both against the receptor binding domain. And that's basically the strategy taken by Lilly and Deer and all the other antibody manufacturers, because it's the only reasonable strategy to take. And you target the receptor binding domain because it's the most important, the best neutralization. You do two independent non-overlapping antibodies to cover the possibility that there is a single point mutation that one escapes. But you're more vulnerable to the point mutation when you're delivering monoclonal or two monoclonal antibodies than if you have a vaccine. Because a vaccine is a highly polyclonal response. That means that no single mutation is really gonna significantly impair the efficacy 
of a vaccine. So it will take a number of mutations before the before a, a vaccine of the kind that we're generating right now will be uh, its, its usefulness will be weakened. Uh, so it's much harder for the virus to escape from a full, complex, um, diverse immune response than it is to escape from one or two monoclonal antibodies. So again, all very good news. Uh, we're, the virus is mutating slowly. Uh, uh, we see how slowly it is mutating. We followed it now for eight months. We can see how slow that is. Um, and a vaccine response is uh, already better against a, a, a mutated virus than, say, a monoclonal antibody. That, that's pretty well covered and gives us a lot of confidence that the virus has a low chance of escaping a vaccine by mutation. In, in a five-year period. So. Yeah, and, and by then, hopefully, we will have had, you know, more progressed or next-generation vaccines that may indeed look at other parts, including, you know, the nuclear protein or there may be other things like that, which is another discussion probably. But yeah, no, but, but to, to be accurate, um, a nuclear, the nuclear protein can be useful for raising T-cell responses and T-cell help as well as mm. CTO responses. But as an antibody target, it's useless because it's mm. hidden in the virus. Now, I guess the key question is, now that we're actually developing and testing these in, in clinical trials in humans, what, what are you looking for in vaccine study results? We've had some already, and everyone seems to be focused on what are called neutralising antibody titers. That is, not only are they neutralising antibodies to the virus, but also yeah. how much of it your body is able to make. Well, I think neutralising antibodies are super important. And in fact, if anything, there's been an underestimate of the importance of that single parameter uh, in the field. Uh, and that is because of the field's tendency to fight the last war, which means to work with viruses that are not susceptible or very susceptible to neutralizing antibodies, and therefore put more emphasis on other arms of the immune system that serve as such sort of backup to neutralizing antibodies. But to be clear, those arms are more destructive uh, of tissue and less desirable. Uh, and they're sort of plan C or plan B. Uh, for the immune system. So the, because this virus is so uniquely susceptible to antibody neutralization, um, the, the focus on antibody, uh, antibody neutralization is fully appropriate. Um, and as I kind of like to say, if you're telling me a lot about uh, T-cell responses, and you're bearing your antibody responses down somewhere in some final panel of a figure uh, of a paper, I know you have not a very good vaccine. Um, and that's especially true here. Whereas in contrast, if you have, you really do need a very strong CTL response, uh, sorry, T cell response for cytotoxic T cell response for um, if you really want to think about an HIV vaccine, for example. So, uh, so the, the, F, uh, the emphasis on uh, Antibody responses are entirely uh, correct, in my opinion. The emphasis on neutralization as opposed to other kinds of antibody-mediated mechanisms is also appropriate because it's the most potent if it works. So there's, there's kind of a plan B built into the antibody response as well. Uh, and that's, uh, that's typically less effective and also a little bit more destructive. 
but neutralization is really the, the the best thing you can have if you can get there, and we can get there. So that's so the answer is B cell response is fully appropriate. Uh, now, um, from what I can see from the both the non-human primate and the human clinical trials is that we have useful but not great neutralizing responses emerging. So just to put, they tend to be under uh, 500. Uh, and that's a, a sort of an arbitrary number. It's a dilution factor for how much you dilute the serum to get, say, 50% uh, to stop the virus, half of the virus. And um, uh, so now numbers like a th over 1,000, over 2,000, over 4,000 are approachable. And so the, these early numbers, while useful, uh, there's a, a huge amount of runway to go. Um, but they're quite useful still because not only they block the virus through neutralizing results, re responses, but those antibodies also um, tend to mobilize the rest of the immune system as well uh, with an actual viral infection. So, so they're both a surrogate for, the, for a generalized, good, integrated immune response and uh, what we would call an effector um, uh, function, an effector mechanism itself, a, a, a thing that does the work of blocking the virus. And so, so, um, uh, so antibodies are important. Uh, we can get there. Uh, you know, we, the responses to date look like they will be useful certainly enough to probably keep most of us out of the hospital. And uh, there's a lot of running room for, a lot of room for improvement. Very good. And and just to get uh, to those levels that you suggested, you know, well, well beyond the 500, let's call it. Yeah. And just for, and correct me if I'm wrong, this 500 somewhat arbitrary number that you did talk about is when people refer to titers. And that's how much you have to dilute a vaccine respondent serum to get it to knock out half of a virus sample in a certain test. Yes. Now, let's take the US, for example. Who do you think will get the vaccine first? Is the infrastructure available? Maybe starting with the distribution. Do you think that's going to be a hurdle? Supply will be the first logistical, first problem. Uh, and also uh, reluctance will be a major problem. Uh, and distribution, certainly this country and other fully developed countries have the resources and infra infrastructure to distribute if they have the competence and political will. Um, so I'm going to assume that they have the competence and political will. And if so, I would say distribution would not be um, as significant an issue, even despite the sort of cold chain um, challenges, uh, then initial manufacture in the early stages, and then overcoming uh, a good deal of reluctance to, to, have, to take the vaccine. And so that would be my perspective on that. And it will be, in terms of supply, we're going to go like so much, like toilet paper and everything else, from too little to too much. Uh, and that will be the circumstance there. And we will have one choice to five choices and um, a lot of confusion, no doubt. 
but um, I think uh, in reasonable order, meaning certainly somewhere in 2021, uh, anybody who will be willing to get a vaccine can have access to a vaccine. Um, look, it might be a tough question, but uh, if you're willing to um, provide your view, which, which vaccines are you sort of most excited about? My preference, all things being equal, would be a tried and true protein vaccine with an established adjuvant. I would think that would, would make sense. And I'm philosophically a late adopter. Uh, and that would be exactly the thing. It's not the, the things that I know about other vaccines, it's the, the unknown unknowns associated with these other vaccines. Um, but I wouldn't wait that long. So I would wait a couple of months for my favorite category, but then I would fall to my second favorite category, which at this point would probably be the mRNA vaccines, either Pfizer or Moderna, uh, mostly because I can't see a mechanism or I can't, I'm, I'm not aware of a downside because the, um, the neutralizing titers appear to be pretty good. And because I know that I, you know, there's there's no um, consequence in terms of my choices next time around for a vaccine if I get this. So I can, I'd be happy to get a boost with it after I get the first injection. Uh, I'm a little bit more wary to be candid about the adenovirus vaccines. Um, not so much for the side effects, uh, which may be there. There's certainly a lot of unknown unknowns, and certainly with untested capsid, a la Oxford AstraZeneca. Um, but there is the downside that they are, um, they are less effective on the second go around. And the other downside is that they're really more geared to eliciting a T cell response than an antibody response, which is great if you're talking about HIV. Uh, but it's um, sort of mistargeted if you're talking about SARS coronavirus 2. And so that's my, you know, candid opinion. I don't have any uh, monetary stake in any of that, uh, but uh, that's that's where I'm coming from right now uh, on the vaccines. Is there anything else that that we have missed here that you think is worth mentioning, or are there any other therapies that you think that may be coming or that are worth talking about? Yeah, well, I've, I've been very, very positive about the antibodies, and so. You know, of course, there's been a lot in the news about the Regeneron antibody pair being used uh, as a therapeutic. And it's interesting to think whether it's effective as a late stage therapeutic, early stage therapeutic, but it's also potentially a good prophylaxis. And so there will be classes of individuals who you can't count on to make a good vaccine response. And it is entirely conceivable that those in individuals could receive uh, an injection once a month or once every two months and be as protected as individuals receiving a decent vaccine. And so the utility of those antibodies, I think is very interesting and I hope we'll move the entire um, field forward on the concept of what's called praf yeah. uh, a passive immunization, meaning just providing antibodies instead of trying to get the body to generate antibodies. And so it's, uh, I, I think that's exciting and interesting and there'll be a lot of um, combinations out there and that, you know, the details of those will be interesting. So I think uh, antibodies will, will be um, a, a quite useful piece of the puzzle of solving this thing. It's great to be able to speak with a leading academic 
in the field of coronavirus biology and vaccine research. Some of the key takeaways for me were Dr. Farzan is very confident that multiple vaccines will become available in 2021. And this is consistent with the view that we've held internally at Antipodes for some time now. This includes first generation vaccines in development being just good enough, but also that next generation vaccines will provide better and longer protection. Importantly, Dr. Farzan believes that mutations are unlikely to significantly impact vaccine responses and that efforts to distribute the vaccine and perhaps public reluctance to take the vaccine will be the key issues facing policymakers when a vaccine is successfully developed. Importantly, these are not unsurmountable. Finally, from an investment perspective, Dr. Farzan's confidence in a successful vaccine being developed is positive for the more cyclically exposed parts of the market. Thanks for your time and thanks for listening.